The church at Philippi was the first church that Paul established in Macedonia. The church had been entirely an Asian and Middle Eastern church. Macedonia is in Europe. And Paul had not originally intended on going to Macedon. He, is, he was on his way to Bithynia, which is still in Asia. And that's where he was headed, and that's where he thought God wanted him to go. But God stopped him and prevented him from going up there and sent him to Macedonia. And so he went to Philippi, and the first thing, one of the first things that happened to him is he and Silas got beat within half an inch of their life and put in chains and thrown in the bottom dungeon and the door locked and the jailer told, keep a careful watch on these men. Not a real good way to begin. <laughs> and their response was worship. Their first response was worship. It wasn't, why is this happening to me? Or, man, I must have messed up. I'd got, I, I, I knew I should have gone to Bithynia. Uh, it wasn't that at all. Uh, their first response was worship. So, this church had a special place in Paul's heart. He had the scars on his body to prove his love for those people and his faithfulness to the calling of God. And the book of Philippians is the most upbeat book in almost all of, the, all of Scripture. Very positive. And there was a, a special bond with those people. When you work together with people for a long time, you get to know them very well. And if it's a good relationship, then you have a, a real strong bond. But when you suffer and bleed with somebody, there is a bond that is triple strong. I, I mean, you, um, you're, sh you're shedding your blood together, then that's a bond that goes deeper. So Paul is writing here to Christian people at the church at Philippi. And he says some incredible things here. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, he's saying these people, he's writing to Christian people, people who know the Lord and are united with him. Christ lives within their heart. He's writing to those people. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded. So he's talking here about unity in love, in spirit, and in purpose. So what he's talking about here is he's not looking for people who are um, all exactly the same. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about uh, unified in motivation, uh, unified in spirit and purpose. They have a common goal. That's one of the things that unites them together. They have a common love. They have a common um, fellowship with Christ. They have a common spirit that motivates them and cleanses and purges them and empowers them. And so they, they are unified in motivation. Now the expression of that is diverse. A lot of creativity in God. Uh, you read the opening chapters of Genesis and it's, it's just a, a, 
incredible creativity that God unleashed when he created the world. And um, if some of you ought to have had the privilege of traveling in other places and seeing other cultures, we've all been exposed to different races, different cultures, different customs, different foods, and just such an infinite variety of life, of life in all of its different forms, animal and, and plants and all kinds of stuff, and just the, the beauty um, and just the creativity, the, a creative God. So we can have the same purpose, the same goal, the same mindset, the same what we would call today maybe worldview, but express that in very different creative ways. It's part of the um, ways that we can come together and people that are creative, they expose us to new ways of doing things. And when that happens, uh, there's fresh understanding and fresh revelation that takes place. And so he's not talking about um, all sitting here in the straitjacket, we all have to dress alike and have to do the same things, go to the same places, like the same things. It's not like that. It's uh, an incredible diversity. And so, but we're united together in Christ. Now he makes a statement about being like-minded. And this is going to be an important thing because he's going to use it two more times in these uh, first five verses. So he's going to talk about being like-minded or have this mind in you. Okay, so he says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. That word purpose is mind. Being a one spirit and mind. So this, is what, this was the context of the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The 120 people in the upper room, all in one accord, all in one mindset, one purpose for being there. Different personality, men and women, different strengths, different weaknesses, different talents, different abilities, different likes and dislikes. But they were there for one purpose, with one goal, and one spirit came upon them. But notice what that one spirit did. They went out and they began to speak and every language under heaven, it says, heard in their own language. What a diversity. What a creativity. One spirit. We look at the gifts of the spirit. Um, people normally say there's nine, but there's more than that. If you read the rest of the New Testament, there's a whole bunch more. Um, not everybody has the same one, so we need each other. That's part of community. And that's why Paul is writing. We want to have one mind, um, one purpose, being like-minded. And he's going to use this word again in verse 5. Your attitude, let this mind be in you. Um, your mindset should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he's going to talk about him emptying himself and denying himself, humbling himself, and going to the cross. And he said to the church, to people who are united with Christ, who have fellowship with the Spirit, who are one purpose, one goal, they should have this very same mindset, this very same motivation. And then he tells us what that is. And he's saying this should be ours. This should be what is going on within us in our daily lives as Christians. And he says, do nothing 
out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That doesn't happen in the church, does it? <laughs> selfish ambition, vain conceit. He had already talked about it in chapter 1. Verse 17. And he's talking about some people in verse 15, Philippians 1, 15. Some people preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. My church is bigger than yours. <laughs> more, I've written more books than you. More people know who I am than you do. I've been on 20 different countries and 10 different radio stations and, you know, people know who I am. Don't you know who I am? I don't know how the kingdom of God gets along without me. Selfish ambition and vain conceit. And, you know, we understand that, don't we? Just before the crucifixion, what are the disciples arguing about? Peter, James, John, Andrew. What are these guys arguing about? Who's greatest in the kingdom? Selfish ambition and vain conceit. Why did Adam and Eve eat the fruit that they were forbidden to eat? They were not content to be made in the image and likeness of God. They wanted to be God. Ambition, conceit. James talks about it in the letter that he wrote. Also talks about um, ambition and conceit, vain ambition. That's not wrong to be ambi ambitious, but it's the selfish ambition that is the problem. Where the big eye comes in again. Where the getting what's due to me or what I deserve. Uh, I found out I don't want what I deserve. So James writes to the church in James 3, and he talks about let your life, if you have wisdom and understanding, um, don't go around bragging and telling everybody how wise you are, how much you know. Let you show it by your good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. And then he says in verse 16, Where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. He's writing to the church, as Paul did. And so when you see a church divided, there's vain ambition, selfish ambition, and vain conceit is operating there. Count on it. It's not the kingdom of God that people are wanting to build. It's the kingdom of self. And so he says, writing to the church, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Which others? It's people in Iraq that are dying. Are they better than us? Are we better than them? Is it because we're better than them that we're safe and secure and they're dying? I think they may have a closer walk with the Lord than we do right now. 
Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. We live in a dog-eat-dog world. And if it keeps up much longer, there's not going to be any dogs left. Because <laughs> that's what happens. You've got to look out for yourself because nobody else will. Well, God will. You've got to get all you can and grasp and hang on to what you got. And this is one of the things that bothers me greatly about survivalists. They go through all this training and they stockpile all this stuff. And what are they doing? They're training to fight and to kill anybody who comes to try to get anything that they have. Serious. This is mine for me and my family. And if you try to come and get it, you will die. Because we are not going to share. That's got nothing to do with what God is about, is it? Your mind set, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's not saying anything new. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 through 26, this is what Jesus himself said. Jesus said to his disciples, and Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, is writing to Christian people, disciples, followers of Christ. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? So that's what Jesus said to his disciples. Remember, uh, we're saying that we're going to be followers of Christ. That means that we follow where he leads. If Christ is going this way and I say I'm his follower, but I'm going this way, I'm a liar. I'm not following him. I'm following myself, doing what I want to do. If we are followers of him, we walk where he walked. We do what he did. We say what he did. Uh, Paul said, for me to live is Christ. And John says, in this world, we are like him. So God created us in the image and likeness of God. Sometimes, though, we're not a real good image and likeness. We're more of a caricature. You know what a caricature is, you know. They take out one or, or more features and they distort it. And I'm wondering if people look at us to see, see the image of Christ in us, are they getting a clear picture of who he really is or are they seeing a caricature? something that's horribly distorted. So Paul says to the church, be like-minded, have one mindset, the mindset of Jesus Christ. He says it three times. And he says, okay, here's the mindset of Christ. And the, the interesting thing is earlier he had written a church, to the church at Corinth 
in 1 Corinthians 2.16, and he was writing to the church, and he says, we have the mind of Christ. So it's not that we don't know, is it? But there's a difference, there's a disconnect between the knowing and the doing. I heard a phrase the other day, and it says, on the road from Gethsemane to Calvary, I lost my way. Gethsemane is the commitment. Calvary is the doing. And many of us lose our way between the commitment and the practical living it out. That's what happened to Judas Iscariot. That's what happened to Peter. That's what happened to every one of the disciples that day. Between, Cal between Gethsemane and Calvary, we lost our way. I think that may be where the church in this country is today. On the road from Gethsemane to Calvary, we've lost our way. Now the good news is, that's why Jesus died, to bring us back into that way. So this is what he was talking about. This is your attitude. This is your mindset. The same that Christ Jesus had, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, clutched, hung on to, clung, you know, defended against. This is who I am and nobody can take that from me. Uh, that's what Adam and Eve were doing. They were grasping and they were clutching. And many times in the church, we do that too. We grasp for different things and we hang on to it as if it's ours. He was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And the whole thing about all this is if you know who you are, you don't have to prove it. If you know who you are, you don't have to prove anything to anybody. And so Satan comes to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, and it's because he was and is the Son of God that he did not do the things that Satan tempted him to do because he knew who he was. He didn't have to defend himself. He didn't have to try to meet other people's expectations or be subject to their judgment because he knew who he was and he was right with his father and nothing else mattered. Didn't have to impress anybody. He was free to be what God intended him to be. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself completely and totally. He was God and he left that and came down to be born in the way that everybody else was born. With a vulnerability and fragility to his life just like yours and I. Mine is. And he walked this earth as a spirit-filled man. He emptied himself. What kind of emptiness was it? That kind of emptiness. So he worked in the, as a carpenter and he got slivers and splinters and they hurt badly. 
and he bled. And later on, he died. So he emptied himself, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Again, it's actually the word slave. The slave was one who was in permanent relation of servitude to another. Who was he a slave to? He was a slave to the will of God. And he said his will was a slave, a wi- his will altogether swallowed up in the will of the other. The slave has no will of his or her own. They can do only what they're commanded and told to do. And so this is why you have the, these, all these parables about the talents, um, about the, the guy who entrusts his authority to his slaves, and he goes off and he says, Blessed is the slave who is found doing the will of his master when he returns and cursed is the one who's doing his own thing because as a slave he has no say in the matter at all. Not supposed to. But we do. Slave has no rights and he's bound to serve without wages. So they don't pay you if you're a slave. You're not going to become rich by being a slave. You're not going to work 14, 16, 18 hours a day and expect somebody to come along and pat you on the back if you're a slave. You're a slave. That's what you're supposed to do. And when you've worked all day, you come in and you're hot and you're tired and you're just dead on your feet. Um, Then the master comes in and says, what are you doing sitting down? Get up and get me something to eat and clean up the house and do the dishes when you're done and the laundry before you get up and go to work tomorrow. And don't be late. You're a slave. And so it troubles me that in the church we have a mindset of we're going to do this so we can earn this and that and all these rewards. It's not a credit card company offering free miles. (laughs) He became a slave and he emptied himself and he became obedient. Made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So as a slave, then he humbles himself even more. One of the great mysteries... And one of the most awesome things I think that Jesus did is found in John 13. He's in the upper room. Um, He knows that in a few hours he's going to be nailed to the cross and he's going to be beaten almost to death before that happens. He looks at these closest men who've been with him all this time. They're still in confusion about who he is and what's going to happen here in the next few hours, even though he's told them repeatedly. There's competitiveness, there's selfish ambition, there's vain conceit among them, and every one of them is going to deny him. One of them is going to betray him. And Jesus gets down in the dirt and washes their feet. That's an awesome thing. The God who created the universe and he's washing the dirty feet of his followers who are not real stable, not real trustworthy, very selfish, um, and 
great expectations, but uh, between Calvary and Gethsemane, they get lost. And yet, he's the good shepherd, comes looking for us. So Paul says, this is the kind of mindset that we have. Um, so that's the kind that we're supposed to have. Let this mind be in you. So that's pretty bleak, isn't it? <laughs> what have we got to look forward to? Well, we can look forward to, uh, to surrendering our, our rights to other people in order for the gospel to be made known. Uh, giving of ourselves and maybe called on like the people in Iraq and Syria, some of these other places, um, to give your life. So what happens then? Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him. God exalted him. And the tomb was no match for him, and the grave is empty, and he rose from the dead. Jesus himself did. He says, the Father has given this authority to me. I can lay my life down. I have authority and power to do that, and I have authority and power to pick it up again, and he did. So God exalted him. So um, Philippians 2, 9. And then we have both James and Peter. James 4, 10, 1 Peter 5, 6. And they say basically the same thing. I'll read from James 4.10. He's talking about um, not being double-minded. So Paul has been talking to the Philippians about um, being of one mind because a double-minded man, in, in, uh, when James talks about being double-minded, it's literally two-souled. It's got two souls. Souls is the outward expression of what's inside, your personality expressing itself and the part that lives forever. And you can't have two. You're going to go to one and deny the other. So a two-souled man, a double-minded man, is unstable in all of his ways. Even up to the point of the crucifixion, Peter had become a two-souled man. After Pentecost, there was only one soul in Peter. Before the road to Damascus, a man named Saul had two souls, and he was fighting. He had an inner war going on. Jesus told him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, the sharp pointed sticks. You can kick all you want, but all you do is you hurt yourself. So he, James is writing and talking about uh, not being double-minded, and he's talking about submitting themselves to God and resisting the devil. And he says if we do that, 
Number one, the devil flees, and the reason that he flees when we resist him is because when we draw nigh to God, God draws nigh to us. And so Satan runs, not because of you or me, but because of the Lord. <laughs> and then he says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves before the Lord. What does that mean? Emptying ourselves, becoming obedient, even obedient unto death. And then God picks us up. God exalts him. Peter says the same thing. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up. God exalts his son, Jesus Christ. Interesting thing. talked about, uh, Moses talked about God spoke to them and as the people of Israel once again rebelled in the desert and complained and griped even though God was providing for them a miracle on a daily basis, miracles on a daily basis, every day 40 years, every day miracle after miracle after miracle and they were complaining and griping dissatisfied with God selfish ambition and vain conceit, I don't deserve... I'm eating the same food every day. Man, what kind of deal is that? <laughs> well, you're eating. And it's not stuff that you had to work for. You didn't plant it. You didn't grow it. You didn't harvest it. All you did was pick it up and prepare it. And they were complaining. So God sent fiery serpents and people were dying. And God said to Moses, you make a snake out of bronze and you put it on a pole and stick it there in the middle of the camp. And if people will look to that and say, that thing that's bringing death to me and destroying us is my sin and rebellion. It's the serpent in the garden. My way instead of God's way. And if you will look to that, you'll be well as a banner. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, just like Moses lifted up that serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And when he talks about it, he talks about it uh, about three or four times in the Gospel of John, uses this word lifted up, and it's a double meaning. Because lifted up means that you're going to be crucified. It's the same word that means exalted, lifted up. God is lifting up his Son, who was humbled himself to death on the cross. And God is exalting him lifting him up off of the cross into heaven, seating him at his right hand. So to be exalted, lifted up before God, means we have to be lifted up on the cross. That's what Jesus told us, right? Matthew 16. If you're going to follow me, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. John 21, when he's talking to Peter, um, Peter denied Jesus because he feared crucifixion. And Jesus told him, Peter, when you're young, you went where you wanted, you did what you wanted to do. When you're old, somebody's going to come and bind you and lead you to where you do not want to go. And then he looked at Peter and he said, what? What did he say? Follow me. That's what he says to you. That's what he says to me. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. 
Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. And what he's just got through saying, let's back up to verse 4. Because of his great love, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised up, raised us up with Christ. Did you get that? And God raised us, you and me, in the church. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Where is that kindness for you and me? By grace, you and I are saved through faith, and that faith is a gift from God. And we who are dead, he has picked us up and exalted us with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. He's treating us as his children. What did God's son do? He learned obedience through what he suffered. He emptied himself, humbled himself, obedient unto death, and God picked him up. And he's doing that for you and me. Now what Paul is saying is that's not happened when the end of our physical life is over. He's saying, I die every day. And because I'm dying every day, the resurrection power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is now alive in us. And we are seated at the right hand of God and we can ask him for anything and he will do it. Because when we ask, it's not I. If we come before him with the I stuff, I want, I deserve, then we haven't died yet. And there can be no resurrection without the death. But when we're exalted and sitting at his hand, then the Lord's Prayer kicks in, doesn't it? Our Father, because we are his children. Paul says in Romans that those who are led by the Spirit of God, those are the children of God. They're the sons and daughters of God. Being led by the Spirit, following his example. Peter said we need to follow in his steps. In his steps. And he says when he was persecuted, he didn't threaten. When he was slandered, he didn't retaliate, made no threats. Dying to self that Christ would be exalted. And when that happens, then the Lord picks us up. And then we have the, we know how to pray because it's the Holy Spirit praying in us and through us and he prays according to the mind and will of God. And he tells us he will pray through us according to the will of God. And we can ask anything then. That's why Jesus spent the time alone um, with his father. And then he was able to do miracles because he knew what God was wanting to do. And he says to the church, greater things than these shall you do in my name. Why is that not happening? Because we haven't died yet. And we're so still full of self and selfish ambition that we're asking for the wrong things. James talks about it. 
You ask and receive not because you've asked for the wrong things out of the wrong motive. And when the Holy Spirit prays through us, then we can stand up like the prophets of old. Thus says the Lord, because they're his words, not ours. And they will happen, because it's not what we want, it's what God wants. And Jesus said it over and over and over again. The words are not mine. The deeds are what I see my Father doing. I'm doing exactly what he's showing me to do. I'm telling you exactly what he told me to say. And that was why they were filled with life and power and they were effective. And Paul was able to do that, what he did, because he walked in the same steps. I die every day that the power of the risen Lord can be unleashed through me. And it's not for selfish ends. It's not so I can be comfortable. It's the glory of God, whatever it takes, whatever the cost. Let this mind be in you, Paul says. Let's pray. So, Father, we come before you amazed and overwhelmed that you love us. Even when we were dead in transgression and sin, you loved us and poured out that love for us through your Son. And then you've got the invitation that you've given through him that we might know you, really know who you are and be part of your family and to know your heart and your will and the desires of our hearts cleansed and changed and purged to where they're holy again. And then we can ask whatever we want with the certainty that it will be accomplished for it's your glory that's being lifted up. So Lord, we pray that you would work that mind deep within us. Change us from within by being united with your Son, filled with your Spirit, and the life that overcomes everything in its path. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.